You're listening to Renew Economy's weekly podcast, an update on clean energy and climate policy. With Renew Economy's editor, Giles Parkinson, leading energy market analyst, David Leach. Welcome again to Renew Economy's weekly podcast, where I, Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy, and David Leach, our analyst, analyse the week's events. David, um, thanks for joining us again. Hi, Charles, and as usual, there's uh, hi to listeners, and there's plenty to analyse for sure. Yes, absolutely. Look, there was a lot happening this week. Um, I guess the most interesting thing was um, some of the submissions from the Finkel report, and we'll probably go through that. Again, um, a lot of noise about the Hazelwood um, closure, uh, the Barrack Gold Generator, and some more interesting stuff on storage trials. But look, let's start off with a little bit of good news. Um, a report came out th- um, this week about the decline in the number of coal-fired power stations being built around the world. And look, it was assumed that um, India, China, and a whole bunch of other countries were building you know, hundreds um, of coal-fired power stations and you know, tens of um, megawatts of capacity. But it seems that um, that trend is actually um, reversing. Well, not so much reversing. It, there's actually two-thirds less being built than was expected. Um, David, what's going on here? Uh, Giles, you're right. And first thing I'd like to do is have a big shout-out and congratulations to the people, Laurie Milverta, and the coal swarm people uh, and the people from coal wire but particularly the coal swarm people who i think have done a fantastic job at collating this global coal data most investment banks uh, wouldn't have anywhere near as good a database as these guys have got what's happened is that uh, china and india have cut back on new coal-fired power plants globally about 50 gigawatts of new coal was started up last year in 2016 which is you know only about a third of the year before and uh, and most of that slowdown is happening in China and India. And these guys were able to present quite a lot of evidence of showing how a number of plants in China and India have been stalled halfway through construction and aren't being completed uh, because of the two economic factors, uh, a lack of demand for the output they're um, uh, producing and a lack of finance. So in China, we saw for the second year in a row last year that the actual average working hours of a coal plant was less than 50%. We get all these complaints about wind farms in Australia only having capacity factors of 35%. Well, coal plants in China are are running about 45%, so not that far apart. Indeed. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, There was another interesting report by Tim um, Buckley from MyIFA, who um, also got a shout-out for us for doing very good work, and he looked at Japan, which is another country which is assumed to be wanting to import a whole bunch of coal from Australia and natural gas, and um, they done they crunched the numbers and did some report and just noted how Japan is sort of like looking at that and not being a very good idea and actually investing more in renewable energy. Um, of course, Japan is still trying to work out what to do with its nuclear reactors after the meltdown in Fukushima, but the likelihood is that um, not many of those will ever get restarted and they're certainly not going to build any new ones. So they're looking at energy efficiency and renewable energy. Um, David, um, let's get back home to Australia. Um, Look, I guess Hazelwood has been dominating the headlines this week and it will continue to dominate the headlines. I found an astonishing story this morning um, on the front page of The Age um, saying that um, Hazelwood faced 72 days of potential blackouts um, over the next two summers. A wonderfully big headline to frighten the customers and make them wonder about what's going to happen over the next two summers. But really a massive beat up because the graph that they are quoting is um, doesn't say what they're actually 
say it's going to go. Um, an awful lot of hyperventilating about Hazelwood. I mean, you actually think there is a bit of a risk of blackout over the next two weeks, but the next two summers, but surely we've got to get this into proportion. And um... Well, we do have to get it into proportion, and it's very difficult for anyone to be that confident about what will happen next summer. We don't know what the weather will be like. We don't know how the rest of the generation fleet will perform. Uh, we don't know how the transmission links will go. It's a brave person that's predicting what will happen. What I would say is that in theory, in theory, there ought to be enough generation, enough um, uh, uh, um, uh, peaking generation with all the hydro and the peaking gas plants to be able to cope with most situations. Um, where the problem is going to be is in the energy over the whole year. And that's, of course, why we've uh, got the high prices. And the really encouraging news when I had another look at the forthcoming supply it's just it's another piece of good news. You know, we're going to get 1.8 gigawatts of wind over the next two years, 1.2 gigawatts of utility PV. And both of those are going to have higher capacity factors than we would have thought two years ago. We're going to get another gigawatt plus of uh, rooftop PV. And, you know, it's uh, in two years time, we're pretty much fully compensated for Hazelwood. Look, that's really interesting too. Yes, I mean those those numbers are encouraging. In fact, you had an article um, this week. Um, you know the renewables to the um, or the renewable cavalry to the rescue, but it's going to it could be ugly in the meantime, um, or something along those lines. And um, that ugliness, I guess, comes along to the way that the wholesale markets perform. I was fascinated to read um, and wrote about it this week. Um, Spark Infrastructure, which of course owns the, two of the networks in Victoria and is the monopoly distributor. Distrib distribution network in South Australia really laying into the gentailers they're the um, you know the people who generate and the and uh, vertically integrated with the retails over their bidding practices and it accused them of deliberately withholding capacity it accused them of manipulating market prices pushing them up way too high um, it um, accused them of having retail prices which are way too high now that may seem funny coming from a network owner it might sound like some people like kettle calling, calling the pot black or the other way around but um, do they have a point? I mean, there's obviously is an issue with the way that the energy market functions. They do have a point, Giles. And you're right, it is funny, you know, because one of the two or three big themes that we've been on about is, besides the lack of management of the NEM, is the fact that it's called the National Electricity Market, but there isn't really much of a market. Half of the price you pay is monopoly regulation, and the other half's basically coming from AGL or Origin most of the time. And the fact is that when you look at it very carefully, what we see is that and naturally these generators and companies are, are trying to use the situation for their sustainable advantage. I mean, they're in business to make profits. And if they can talk the market up uh, to its full extent, well, of course, they're going to do that. So I guess where the pedal hits the metal specifically, I mean, whilst Victoria will be stretched next year, the question is how much electricity from New South Wales, if any, will get, actually get down to Victoria? And how can New South Wales replace the electricity that it will lose from Victoria? And that's going to require power stations like Araring, which is the biggest single unit in New South Wales, to step up from its 51% capacity utilisation. But... If you look at the company origin that owns that power station, isn't giving any real indication that it will do so. And I'm not convinced they've got enough coal to enable them to easily step up output a lot. Similarly with Vales Point. Uh, and so this is where you do get concerned, not so much about blackout risk, well, that's, you've got to keep an eye on that, but it's just the actual energy through the year 
is going to be struggling and we may be relying on these peaking gas plants to be delivering a lot more power than we really want them to. And if we are end up relying on the peaking gas plants, then we can be sure to be paying a very, very high that price. Is, that is correct. Now, just on that, you, you, we've been looking at the futures price, and I think you know we here at Renew Economy were some of the first to draw attention to just how much prices were going up. And, and we drew attention to the 40% increase in the baseload futures price that's happened since January this year. Now, we've known Hazelwood was closing uh, before that. So why did it go up so much in January? Well, that was the Portland aluminium smelter and the big hidden, hidden cost that was going to be of keeping that smelter going in the, in the higher electricity prices. But when we look at the cap prices, which are like the uh, option on electricity in the March quarter, there's just some signs now that that's finding a level. And perhaps the price increases are sort of gone up as much as they can, just in the short term at least. I wonder if they're starting to factor in some of those, um, some of that new renewable energy generation that you've been talking about, because there is certainly a lot, all of a sudden, appearing all over the place. I mean, I think you sort of actually chronicled a lot of the solar projects, and I'm pretty sure you might have actually missed a couple out. Um, I mean, you know, um, some of them might, um, some of them have been flying under the radar. But everyone you talk to when you go to a conference or you go to something, there's somebody else has popped up. There's another European investor looking around. There's somebody else running around farms, sort of signing up, sort of um, approvals for 100 and 200 megawatts and even 300 megawatt projects. Um, we just could be seeing an awful lot of construction over the next two years, but possibly not, as you pointed out today, um, in time for the coming that's summer. That's where you have to go back and blame Tony Abbott. I mean, uh, that guy did, uh, quite frankly, I don't think it's political to say it, but he did a lot of damage because uh, that generation would have been coming on a year earlier. We would have seen a lot more wind in the mix and it would have been coming on in time for this coming summer. But it's not just that, because the bigger problem is really now this friction between the states and the federal government. And uh, uh, I think that's a shame, because in the end, it stands to reason that if as Australians we cooperate and pull together, we'll get a better outcome, most likely, than all going our separate ways. Particularly when it comes to things like, you know, deciding whether we need new transmission to support more, more wind farms, or whether we should have distributed energy. If you want to build Snowy Hydro too, uh, if that is a good idea and not just a thought bubble, then it's going to go to Victoria and New South Wales. You know, it would be, but but in the absence of federal policy, um, uh, we're back on we're back to the states' targets. And thank goodness we've got them. Thank goodness for Simon Corbell and his ACT scheme, which is going to produce the only new supply this year. Well, absolutely. Um, and look, an, another part from the Finkel Review um, and some more good news. It was really interesting to see the. The former head of um, um, on, um, GDF Swears, as they were then known, and known as NG, the owners of the Hazelwood um, brown coal generator, which is closing. Um, this is uh, Tony Concannon. He actually now heads a new solar company, Reach Solar Energy, and he his um, submission to the Finkel Review was actually really, really, really interesting because he was pointing out that he'd gotten a quote um, as recently as December for large-scale PV in South Australia with battery storage that came out, he said, cheaper than baseload gas. Yeah. That's pretty significant, isn't it, David? Well, I think it is. And the numbers here quoting, if you convert to US dollars, are, are fairly similar to what we saw in the recent Hawaii project that uh, uh, Tesla uh, has won. So that, that is fantastic news. The actual price, of course, itself is still fairly high, $110. And it does raise in my mind the, the, the point that we're not necessarily going to go back to the 30 and $40 prices that we've been seeing in the past few years. You know, the, we're going to settle 
uh, I think, looking forward at, at the new entrant price, whatever that is. And, you know, the new entrant prices, and this is what I keep saying, the renewal, it's not just the levelised cost of electricity for a new wind farm. You do have to factor in a premium for dispatchability or a cost of, of making that uh, wind and, and, and solar dispatchable. Also, I think myself, uh, people are infatuated with solar uh, uh, um, and underestimating the fact that wind actually has quite a lot of diversification benefit. Like if everyone builds solar, in, not just in Queensland, but in South Australia, without the batteries, pretty soon the price in the middle of the day is going to be zero. And you might build your solar project today thinking you're going to get a great deal, but if everyone else two years later builds a whole lot more of it, guess what? You're going to suffer too. Well, exactly right. And I guess that's half the issue with the storage ones as well, because a lot of those storage um, installations are being based on an arbitrage price. But if you build enough storage, then you're not going to get so much arbitrage. So there's issues there, um, which goes to this idea of actually redefining the way that markets are sort of priced what, what, and what have you. Um, but um, that's, a, um, that's another talk for another time. David, you've got a bit of an update on SPOSnets. You were down there visiting them this week, and you've got a bit of an update on the... Um, on one of their little mini grids, um, picking up, um, linking sort of fourteen houses in 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 one. Um, I can't quite remember where it is. Mirabalka. Yeah, I it? think it's something like that. You know, I've had enough trouble spelling you and Quinty, and uh, I have a friction out, and there's you know the number. I, I, you know, I'm not going to be a, a spelling expert as well as an electricity expert, but <laughs> regrettably. But yes, uh, I, I was speaking to people about that, and that's a fantastic project because. Uh, I keep going on about the fact that we're underestimating the potential of distributed electricity to build in resiliency. And another one of these debates, we've got this federal state debate, we've got this renewable versus thermal debate, we've got this, uh, and, uh, and another debate is around distributed electricity. And then the fourth debate is around networks and the ring fencing. And I personally think that people have paid far too much attention to uh, what I might call cross-subsidisation or what the AMC calls cross-subsidisation and not enough to the benefits that, that there are for having networks do a lot of the storage. So in this particular street, uh, what they've happened, they've got 14 houses, the 16 houses in the street, as far as I know, the 14 of them have got uh, a battery and solar installed by Osnet and uh, they're all, they've got uh, GreenSync running software, uh, which has done, seems to have done a great job getting it all to cooperate. From what I hear, they've been able to reduce their bills per household by 30 to 40%. And uh, the software's now developed to the point and the hardware where they could actually cut that street off, uh, island that it's called, from the main grid, and none of the houses actually knew. Not just the houses with the battery and solar, but the houses that didn't have battery and solar, they didn't know they were cut off from the grid either because the other houses in the street were cooperatively uh, helping them out. And so I really think these kind of experiments that Osnet are doing uh, and GreenSync are doing uh, illustrate the fantastic potential that we've got in this country for distributed electricity and where federal and state government policy should be paying more attention to this and, and, and not just to getting big utility scale projects up. Indeed, indeed. In fact, I visited South Australian Power Networks a couple of weeks ago when I was in Adelaide, and they've had running a, 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 a similar trial. Um, not quite the same thing, the SPOs net, but um, several dozen battery storage, and they've got some interesting results, which I'll be writing about next week, coming from that. And once again, the same issue. Can they actually install these across the network, um, and how do they do that? With the ring fencing guidelines, possibly not, but maybe they f can find a way around that by actually installing them and having a third party running them. I guess that's yet to be tested, and that's something that they're exploring. 
exploring. Um, look, Dave, we might sort of um, wrap up pretty much here. Um, look, next week is going to be an interesting one. We've got the final report of the... Um, of the um, AEMO investigation into the system black in South Australia la um, last year. So that'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. Are you expecting anything exciting? Um, no, I think, uh, in all honesty, South Australia has been done to death uh, in, in a way. We all know that there are plenty of answers to the problems in South Australia in terms of the resiliency and frequency control. I, I think we're already over the technical hurdle there. I mean, we synthetic inertia, uh, the batteries, uh, better, better uh, um, uh, tripping, um, tripping facilities. <laughs> Sounding like a hippie there, aren't I? Uh, on the wind farms, <laughs> takes me back. I must say, uh, Giles, shouldn't say that. <laughs> How far, David? How far? <laughs> it's a bit dim and hazy, to be honest. Um, um, uh, but so, and, and then. We've still got this court case running on the networks, which is incredibly important to all the networks. All the, all, the, all the network price determinations are basically held up while we wait for this federal court case to come down in regard to Ausgrid. So that's important. And then, of course, we're actually going to see in the physical market what happens when Hazelwood goes out of the system. And that's going to start happening from next week. Uh, and, and so we'll all be watching that with an amazing amount of interest. Indeed. Well, I only counted one day this week when um, energy was not the front page news on the uh, Australian newspapers, so it'll be interesting to see what happens next week. David, thanks once again for joining Pleasure, us. Pleasure, Giles. Cheers. And, and goodbye to everybody. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.